Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Did you know that there's no widely agreed upon definition of what emotions actually are? After losing his dad to COVID-19 in the early days of the pandemic lockdown, neuroscientist Dean Burnett found himself wondering what life would be like without emotions. In today's episode, Dean combines his personal story with expert analysis, humour and powerful insights into the grieving process to uncover how emotions make us who we are. If you check out the episode description, you can find a link to get Dean Burnett's book, Emotional Ignorance, Lost and Found in the Science of Emotion. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 30th of January, 2023. You can get tickets to upcoming talks happening in our theatre and live streamed worldwide by going to rigb.org. Remember to leave this episode a rating and a review to let us know what you think. Now, over to the theatre. Thank you. Genuinely, thank you for coming out tonight, uh, and so many as well. I thought if I get 50, I'd be happy. So, yes, so thank you very much for coming out it's not on me. I didn't quite know how to start this because um, I've done this before um, in this very venue, uh, which is nice. But uh, this book, as I'm doing now, is, is a different one because unlike my other books, it's not a book I actually planned to write. And it's not a book, if I'm being honest, I actually wanted to write. Very glad I did. I think doing so saved my life. But that's, a, you know, that's an interesting way to start something. So I should really start by talking about how the book came about. Um, you know, it's about emotions, which is not something most scientists talk about very often. We sort of put them to one side, or sort of take them, take them for granted. And I used to do that. I was someone who did that a lot. I used to you know, just think, oh, emotions, that's a thing. Put them over there. We'll focus on the important stuff. But then, um, no, stuff happened. What happened? Now, at this point, in a talk or like a book, uh, the author would tell you about the, the moment they had the epiphany or the realisation which led to them going on the journey that uh, resulted in the book. And there's usually something quite uh, poignant, something quite exotic as well. A lot of books start like that. You get something like, as I was stood there, deep in the Amazon rainforest, <laughs> surrounded by the fecundity and lushness of life, as I was reminded of my place in the ecosystem which sustains us all and responsible for all life on Earth, as the setting sun slowly filtered through the dewy raindrops clinging to the, to the lush foliage, as the junior capybaras frolicked amongst my feet, <laughs> I became one with life and nature. And then it occurred to me, why are traffic cones orange? <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. I don't have stories like that. That is not how my life works. My story about emotions begins with me <clears throat> watching a stranger eat six inches of raw horse intestine. <laughs> like to clarify, it's not a hobby, <laughs> nor is it a fetish, where anyone starts accusing me of things. No, uh, it was 2002. And I was uh, in my final year of neuroscience undergraduate degree. And I had, uh, you know, had a lot of exams coming up. I had a lot of studying to do. So obviously, I was procrastinating. And this was before smartphones, before Wi-Fi, before broadband. So I had to go downstairs to the front room and channel hop on the TV like a Neanderthal. As I was channel hopping, looking for something to distract me, uh, I came across, as I said, a stranger eating six inches of raw horse intestine. I like saying that because it's a weird thing to find on TV, and it was. It distracted me. I was like, oh, good Lord, look at that. It was from an American reality TV show called Fear Factor. You may be familiar with it. It was on for quite a while, despite, you know, uh, all common sense and decency. <laughs> premise of the show was that contestants, American contestants, would sign up for it to go on TV and face challenges, which scared them, caused fear. 
And they would like go on top of high buildings, walk across narrow beams, deal with insects and you know, rats and stuff like that, and occasionally eat six inches of raw horse intestine, <laughs> which is, you know, it's a sight. <laughs> and here's the thing. I was you know, a bit startled by that, because you know, I wasn't expecting to find that. I was hoping for something more distracting, but that was a bit much. But it wasn't, um, you know, already the part of my neuroscience mind was ticking away, the analytical part, saying, oh, whoa, whoa, there's something wrong here. There's loads of things wrong here, but this one particular <laughs> thing I'm thinking of, I don't want to eat six inches of raw horse intestine. Based on the expression, the person on the screen does not want to be eating six inches of raw horse intestine. I'm going to wager no one in this room is looking forward to the prospect of eating six inches of raw horse intestine. That's fair, I think it's a fair statement. I don't think anyone's afraid of that. I think the prospect of eating raw horse intestine makes you disgusted, you pulsed. Does anyone wake up sweating in the middle of the night going, oh, I had the horse intestine dream again? <laughs> it's a different emotion. That's disgust, repulsion. Does anyone go to the top of a really high cliff, look down and go, Ugh. you might be nauseous, but you're afraid. You're not disgusted by a height. It's a totally different emotion. That completely violates the format of the show. This is fear factor, not disgust factor. I was trying, I think, I was trying to avoid vision. I, was, I dedicated my, my, my brain to this. And I've looked it up since, I've tried to find it online. I can't find anyone who's ever complained about that. I sure got a lot of complaints. And no one complained about that specifically. It's a very, very strange thing. No one noticed that this violates the premise of this long-running, internationally popular TV show. When TV shows normally get something wrong, people complain. There are death threats, more often than not. But this time there wasn't. Just thought, clearly, this idea that we have that people have no emotions and understood is wrong. Didn't know what to do with that, so just filed that away for later reference. Many, many years later, talking to my publishers about what's my next book going to be, it came back. So, oh, you know what? I think there's something to be said for looking into emotions, explaining how they actually work, exploring the well-established science of these, you know, often forgotten parts of the psyche. Publishers said, yeah, okay, do that. I said, all right, fine, I will. I did. Shook hands, signed a contract, sat down, just to write about emotions. And really, immediately realized I made a terrible mistake. Uh, they're not simple, not at all. They're not well understood, far from it. Really complex, the most complex thing I've ever encountered in my life. And I'd agreed to write about it. That was bad. Every time I try to find a basic answer to something, like finding the literature, a you know, vaguely similar, straightforward premise, found one answer, 12 more questions popped up, each more complex than the last, like a terrifying fairy tale. And I was worried. I think, you know what, I've taken five runs of this, so five different first drafts. It's not working. I cannot do this. I cannot write about emotions. I don't know how to do it. And I was going to throw in the towel. But something stopped me from sending time to publishers I couldn't do this. And that something was the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. It stopped a lot of things, if memory serves. At first, I thought I was going to write it out quite well, because I already worked from home, like a trendsetter. You know, people are stuck at home. They buy books, read more books. So I was looking pretty. And you know, people are always talking about what's going to be the psychological impact of being locked down for so long. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm well-placed to talk about this. And so I thought I would be, uh, you know, it'd be quite good. I'd write this pandemic in style. And then uh, March, the first month of the pandemic, my 58-year-old father, Peter, uh, contracted the COVID-19 virus. And in April, he died. And it was awful. I couldn't go and see him. I couldn't help. He was under quarantine. The information I had about his condition was relayed to me every other day, second or third hand, by extremely frazzled frontline medical staff in the two or three minutes they had to spare every day. And his condition declined, and I couldn't see anyone, couldn't do anything. 
And when you know, they told me it's gone too far, he's not going to make it, I had to say goodbye to my father, I'm 58 years old, over a WhatsApp call with 20 minutes notice from my kitchen. And I'm just sort of choking out what I could say about how I appreciated him and all he's done for me. And uh, you know, a brief five-minute call where a consultant held the phone to his unresponsive ear as he was on a ventilator. And then he passed. And all the usual avenues of dealing with grief were denied. We were locked down. I couldn't get away from anything. I couldn't go anywhere. No one could come and help me. I still had kids. I still had responsibilities. I couldn't hide away. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't even go to the pub and drown my sorrows, as bad an idea as that is. It was denied to me. I had nothing I could do to do with the grief alone in isolation. And that, I believe, is what we call a tonal shift. <laughs> that is the nervous laughter release tension, which shows how powerful emotions are. Now, you don't know my father before today. That was the first time you've seen him, I wager. You only knew his existence via logical extrapolation. I exist, therefore, so must he at some point. But, you know, there was a clear tension there in the room clear emotional resonance. With a few words, I managed to change the mental state of everyone looking at me right now, which is powerful. I shouldn't, be ha I shouldn't be someone who has that power. I'd say that right now. But I do, because that's what they do for us. Emotions are extremely, extremely powerful things. And I was dealing with that. And I was stuck alone on my own in my little office you know, with a head full of turbulent, rolling emotions. And you know, no outlet, no output. But that little neuroscientific part of my brain came to the fore again and said, you know what, this sucks, not arguing that. This is a terrible situation to be in. What you have right now is a head full of turbulent, powerful emotions. 20 years of neuroscience knowledge and an obligation to write a book about emotions. It's a very unique set of circumstances. Why not exploit that? And write about the emotions you've got right now, because that's how I tend to deal with things. I don't understand what's happening to me. Try to get to the bottom of it, get some clarity. It helps. It doesn't fix things, but it does help. And that's what I did. I thought, you know what, I'm going to write about my emotions, pin them down into the metaphorical corkboard, dissect them, and see why this is happening to me, and therefore other people. Because I was one of millions who was going through the same thing. I know that. So, what did I find out? And that's what the book is. What, what, what did I find out about emotions? It turns out they're a very, um, very complex thing, very interesting thing. Start with the basics. The very, very basics. Basics. What is an emotion? You can't talk about emotions if you don't know what an emotion is, surely. That is you know, a straightforward, logical statement. So, what is an emotion? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> so, thank you all for coming. Um, I know it's, <laughs> you know, it's, you probably expected more than this, but um, please still do buy the book. Um, it, finish after chapter one, the rest is just um, David Jason's autobiography with the names changed. Uh, <laughs> He's an interest in life, it's worth buying. Um, I jest, I jest, but I don't. I don't know what emotion is. But in my defense, it turns out no one does. There is no widely agreed upon, robust, accepted definition of emotions available in society today. You can speak to people who do a lot of emotion research, and there are lots of people who do it, so it's not something which is overlooked. And they'll all have their own definition, but other people have different ones and they'll have a different one as well, and someone after them will have another different one. There's no consistency that I could find you know, in any sort of re reliable, useful way. I actually spoke to some an expert about this. I spoke to Dr. Richard Firth Godby here, who's a historian of emotions, who has his own book about emotions, and we've since started talking, and now we've got a podcast together, because that's basically inevitable. Um, <laughs> two 40-something straight white nerds get together, a podcast will occur at some point. 
It's basically Sunday league football for people like us. And you know, I asked him, I said, what, uh, you know, what's the definition of emotions? You know, I can't find a, uh, you know, a consistent definition of what an emotion is. Uh, he laughed. He laughed, uh, which is an emotional reaction. Maybe he's being meta. But it wasn't uh, you know, a reassuring jolly laugh. It was a bitter, hollow laugh. The sort of laugh you might get from like a grizzled war veteran when you try and tell them about how things got a bit tense in the company paintball tournament. Yeah, so he's, you know, he's dealt a lot with this. And it is, he said, it's a, it's a problem. As he put it, there are as many definitions of emotions as there are people researching emotions. Uh, in fact, more, because people change their minds all the time. So probably twice as many. So, you know, it's, it's a problem. But people are looking into it. It's a genuine thing. Um, in 2020, uh, Carol Izzard, one of the prominent uh, uh, emotion researchers, ran an experiment where he spoke to lots of different people from the field of emotion research and asked them, you know, what do you think an emotion is? And put together a sort of outline definition of what an emotion is based on uh, the feedback he got and all the consistent parts that people told him about. So according to this study, which is a published article, an emotion is... A commotion consists of neural circuits that are at least partially dedicated to response systems and a feeling state process that motivates and organizes cognition and action. Emotion also provides information to the person experiencing it and may include antecedent cognitive appraisals and ongoing cognition, including an interpretation of its feeling state expressions or social communicative signals and may motivate approach or avoidant behavior, exercise control regulation of responses and be social or rational in nature. Are we all clear now? <laughs> it is one of those uh, explanations which makes you stupider after you hear it. I say that personally. And it's, it's odd, because you know, this isn't meant to be a dictionary definition. It's just something like, if I were aware, this is what an emotion is. But we can't seem to pin them down, because they don't have an obvious parameter. Like, you can't say an emotion begins and ends here. They don't. They are, they're part of our thinking, are part of our psyche. But you know, where do they start and begin? Where do they stop? What part of what you're experiencing is the emotion which isn't? It's really hard to get to the bottom of that. They're too close. They're too deeply ingrained into us. In some ways, trying to define an emotion is like trying to look at your own retina. Technically, the equipment's there, but we just can't do it because it's just too, we just, you know, it's too fundamental. Which is fair enough. You know, um, doesn't mean we can't study it. No, it doesn't. Because you can still study things which you don't have a set definition for. That's how you find a definition. And you know, it's, you know, you can, if you don't see the rock form the water, you can still count the ripples. And so we're studying um, well, what emotions do to us, the effects they have, because they have many. And there may be some physicists in the room right now who are like scoffing like, you know, the, the silly neuropsychobods with their vague definitions. Fair enough, you know, tell you what, you tell me what dark energy is, then we'll talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give it a cool name, they won't know what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we all know what you're up to. So, what do we study when we come to emotions? It's the effects they have in us, because they have physical effects. And that was an interesting thing to realize. I mean, we're all, we're all aware of it, but it's true. Emotions have a strong presence in the body. A lot of things that our bodies do are emotional in nature. And you know, we have the language we use about them reflects that too. You know, your stomach's churning with nervousness. You know, you're tense, you're stressed, you know, like you're, you're, you're flighty, butterflies. These are all emotional reactions of the physical element. And you know, we, when you have significant trauma like, or emotional problems, you are heartbroken because your heart's involved, apparently. That's why the heart gets the credit. It's a pump. It doesn't do anything apart from pump things. Saying it's responsible for emotions is like saying oh, Boeing 757 is flown from the toilet. It's just plumbing. But, you know, that's by the by. It is, you know, but it's, you know, we do know this. It's something you just don't think about, but it's true. We, 
emotions have a strong physical impact. They lead to consequences in our body. And you know, that's just how it is. You know, our face changes. Faces are a big part of emotion research. When you have an emotion, it's normally reflected in your face. Your face goes a certain shape and configuration, and we can read that and say, oh, that person's happy, that person's sad, that person's oncoming, whatever it may be. And that is, you know, that's a big part of motion research, is all about facial expressions, because it suggests that whatever's happened in your brain is causing a consequential reaction on your face. So there's a direct sort of neurological link between what's happening in your head, in your brain, and the facial muscles that are going on. So that's a, that's a big source of information for emotion research. But it goes even more fundamental like that. It affects us on the chemical level. So we cry when we have emotions. You know, usually sadness, sometimes happiness, sometimes anger. You know, lots of different triggers. But there are three types of tears. There's your basal tears, which are just the film that covers your eyes at all times. There's your reflex tears, which are what flushes out irritations in your eyes, like dust or onion juice, whatever it happens to be. And there are psycho-emotive tears. Emotive tears we have when we have an emotional reaction to something. And these are chemically different. We studied, they actually have a different chemical composition to your other tears. So it's not just you know, showing people your tears, like they come out and go, oh, that person's upset, I'll do something about that. There's a chemical element too. Now what that is, what that's for, debatable, something to do with like, it's a lot of oxytocin. So people who are exposed to the vapor of your tears become more emotionally engaged with you. That's one theory. It's a very small dose, but you know, every little helps. So you know, we know that emotions have a, uh, you know, a physical consequence. It's even more intriguing to find that what happens in your body can affect your emotional state. Now, sometimes that's obvious. You, know, you step on a nail, you will be upset. Uh, you feel sick and nauseous, you're not going to be happy. You feel, like, you feel sorry for yourself, you feel bad. There's strong emotional reactions from physical events. But you know, it can be more subtle than that. And I'm about the 40-minute mark. I'm going to try and speed up a bit because I know you'll start to get annoyed with me. You'll find me irksome. Not because of what I'm saying, not just because of what I'm saying, <laughs> but because as proud as I am and as prestigious as this venue is and like, the storied history it has, the seating arrangement here is from 200 years ago, back when people were smaller and ergonomics wasn't a thing. You know, why do ergonomics when be dead by 40? So, you no, know, it gets uncomfortable after a while, so I'll try and keep things moving. But you'll become, you, know, you have a negative emotional reaction to just sitting down for too long. And it can even go more fundamental than that. There is like a, there's the cranial nerves, the big nerves that connect your brain to other parts of your body. Most of them are in the head, connecting to the eyes and your ocular motor muscles and faces and stuff. But the vagus nerve uh, is like the one that does all the rest. You know, like everyone's got, whenever you do a group project, there's always someone who just does all the, the, the manual labor stuff. That's the vagus nerve. It connects to every other organ and relays information from them to the brain. And that's important, because obviously it means stuff's happening with our organs, and if something goes wrong, that, that information is relayed to the brain. Not necessarily at a conscious level, just your brain's getting signals from all these organs going, okay, that's going, that's working, that's working, that's working, that one's not so good. And it can affect our emotional state. And particularly, it turns out, with the digestive system. That's the, most, that's the second most complex organ in the body after the brain, according to most in assessments. But of course, it's really important. It affects what goes into our body. And what comes in, all the resources, all the nutrients, all the chemicals that enter our body come in via the digestive system. So it's important. There's a lot of studies now which show that, or suggest that, you can treat, uh, well, <coughs> depression and other mood disorders, emotional problems, can arise from the digestive system. 
because something's going wrong in there, and that's, that information has been related to the subconscious parts of your brain, which will lead into an emotional reaction, a negative one. But you're not consciously aware of that. You're going, uh, I'm just feeling crap. I don't know why, just am. Because your digestive system is telling your brain something's amiss. Your emotions are trying to tell you that, but it doesn't reach the conscious level. So a lot of modern depression research goes into stimulating the vagus nerve to change that signal from your lower, you know, the lower organs to alleviate depression and such things. And then, you know, that's, so it does show that the, the body can have a direct, distinct effect on an emotional state. It's a very physical element to it all. But you know, it's, there's more to it than that. And it seems some people go further. They say that the body is responsible for all our emotions. The somatic marker hypothesis. That, so when something happens to us, when we sense something happening, our body has a specific combination of responses, and that specific combination is related to the brain. The brain goes, ah, that means anger, that means sadness, etc., etc. It's got some merit to it, but it's not a widely accepted theory because you can have an emotional reaction without any physical occurrence. And we know we've all done this. We've all just been walking along, minding our business, and suddenly the memory of that thing from your teenage years suddenly pops up again. And then you just cringe it into a... <laughs> and people have to step over you to get on the bus, and that's awful. <laughs> but that happens. Like, there's no physical cue. Nothing happened. It just, you know, it's a thing. So, although the body is a big part of the emotional system, it's, it's widely agreed that it is, you know, it, emotions come from the brain. So where in the brain do emotions come from? That's the question, isn't it? It's a big question. I get asked this question a lot, and the answer is yes. You know, where do emotions come from in the brain? Yes. <laughs> I know, that makes no sense. Indeed. That's why I say it. Because it's, you know, again, it's a modern misconception that everything that happens in the brain comes in one specific place, one specific bit, and that's all produced and churned out and our minds are affected as a result. But it's more complex than that. The emotions are so integral, so fundamental, there are multiple different parts of the brain working together at all times to produce an emotional reaction. And it's really hard to pin down one and say that's where emotions are from. It's tantamount, just like writing out a joke, saying which word does the humour come from? There's no one word, it's all of it. You know, it needs more than some of its parts. You zoom in too close, you lose the big picture that you need. And that's true of the brain as well. But there are some bits which are you know, more uh, linked to emotions. The amygdala is a strong one, and that's essentially a hub of various emotional responses, originally linked with fear, correctly, uh, but now it does lots more stuff. It applies the emotional context to memory. It uh, uh, decides the emotional reactions is relevant in a certain social context. Uh, there's the, um, uh, the limbic system. That's sort of the, the old-fashioned word for all the bits of the brain which uh, are responsible for emotion. Um, limbic means edge or border because it was between two other bits because neuroscientists are fundamentally boring people. And there's the anterior cingulate cortex. That's a good one. That uh, seems to be a sort of a nexus between conscious rational analytical thought and emotions and how they interplay and interact with each other. That seems to be something that that part is particularly key for. So there's lots of different parts of the brain, lots of networks which get together and cause emotional reactions and processes and things around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So once again, like with that, it's really hard to work out where one bit uh, comes from. No, what, what, which bit is responsible for a certain emotional reaction, except in certain cases. And it's really hard to pin that down, despite all our you know, current advances in technology, because... Uh, Emotions are neurologically um, older than rational thought, but they're also more efficient. They're like they've, 
They're more simple, more straightforward. They're not simple at all, but in a neurological sense, compared to abstract reasoning, they are um, a bit more straightforward, like I said. Which means they happen fast and very quickly. An emotional reaction happens long before, in the, in the, on the neurological scale, your realization of it. That's why you can always know. You say count to 10, you know, if you get angry. They don't say don't get angry in the first place, because you can't avoid that. It happens before conscious thought occurs. And that is a big problem with our technology as well, because even the most advanced scanning technology we have, the MRIs and stuff, they take a little while to uh, you know, detect a signal because of the way all the elaborate processes involved. So it takes like a second to register where uh, a thing in the brain has occurred. But a second is a, is a long time for an emotional reaction. It can be started up, fired up, deployed, processed, and gone again in like one-seventh of a second. So our machines aren't particularly good at finding where emotions are happening in the brain because they just happen so fast. Sort of like scanning technology, trying to find emotions in the brain. It's tantamount to go into a horse racing track and find, trying to work out which one won by looking at the hoof prints by the, by the finish line. So you might be able to tell, but you won't know. It's hard. There's a lot of extrapolation involved. I don't know why I keep coming back to horses in this. I have no interest in horses whatsoever, but it seems to be a recurring theme. I should probably study that. <laughs> so emotions are intertwined in all different parts of the brain. So this idea, which is common in sci-fi, and I indulged it myself when I was trying to deal with you know, these powerful, distracting, unpleasant emotions, was that you know, they are a problem for the brain. They are vestigial. They don't, we don't need them anymore. We've gone beyond them. Like the idea that there's some little part of the brain which emotions just yank that out. We'll be all creatures of pure logic and reason. We'll be smart. And that's not going to work. It'll never work, because emotions are far too intertwined with everything the brain does. And that's good in many ways, because you know, it, it reflects how important they are for everything we do. And that includes rational thought. Like I said, emotions and thinking, though of people would say these things are separate processes. They're almost incompatible. A lot of sci-fi you get, you've got your merciless robots, your advanced aliens who aren't vulnerable to emotions. They don't have them. And therefore, they are better than us in some way. They are a threat to us because they are not uh, subdued by these erratic, irrational feelings. Uh, we have you know, the ability to think rationally and logically. It comes from the prefrontal cortex in the brain. That's, uh, where that's the most advanced part of the human brain, which is all the complicated stuff happens. And it's, you know, it's a widely assumed thing that emotions get in the way of rational thinking. They stop us being rational and uh, prevent us from being uh, sensible. And if we weren't so vulnerable to emotions, we could get a lot more done. It doesn't quite work that way. Emotions have a much bigger part to play, and a more important part to play in our thinking than sci-fi and certain online guys would have you believe. For example, if you need to urinate, the best place to do it is in a public shower. Someone laughed, thought I was joking. I am not. Logically, that is true. It's already, you know, it's a surface designed to be hit with water. It is constantly being sluiced with hot, soapy water. You've already got no clothes on. You haven't got to even get undressed. And you've already got access to soap and stuff. And that water's constantly coming. You haven't got to flush it. It's environmentally friendly to do it that way as well. So sensibly, logically, the best place to urinate is in a public shower. For the record, I do not urinate in public showers. <laughs> and I'm going to say now, presumably no one's going to do that. My logic was not flawed, but still, the idea made everyone go, Ugh. about me, about the premise, I don't mind, whatever. I don't be in public showers. 
It was a pure hypothetical. It was literally a shower thought. <laughs> and that sort of shows that, no, that's, that, it was illogical. My reasoning was intact. You could see that, oh, you, the explanation, the information I had to hand made sense. You're not going to do it. Because I don't have all the information. I don't know what residual soapy water will do to the bacteria in human waste. I don't know if that's going to be completely covering. I don't know how long they get cleaned. I don't know. It's not gonna, it, doesn't make, it doesn't actually make sense. They didn't have the information. But the logic was there based on the information I supplied. But the emotional reaction everyone had was like, oh, no, 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 no. Because over time, both evolution and developmentally, we've learned that you just stay away from human waste. Don't, don't go near Don't interact with it. It's not good. That emotional reaction, that disgust, is, it guides us. It keeps us on the straight and narrow. You can argue, like, oh, well, you should definitely do this because X, Y, Z logic. You know, people have logical premises for eugenics. Don't want to do that. It's bad. And it's not just, you know, the logic is, uh, you know, can be flawed. Sometimes, you know, people think that you need your rational thinking to rein your emotions in. Sometimes, your rational thinking is the cause of emotional problems. Is anyone here afraid of flying? Imagine so, yeah. You know. Has anyone here ever died in a plane crash? <laughs> you then raise the hand, well done. That's, uh, <laughs> takes it. See me afterwards, because I, I, I need to ask you some things. It's a very, very, um, you know, common phobia. This chair has nothing to do with it. I'm just standing like this for a second. It's a very common phobia, flying. But no one's ever really been hurt in, a, in, a, in an airplane. You know, it's, you might, it might be uncomfortable, it might be unpleasant. You know, it's a stressful trip sometimes, but it's not actually dangerous. And all the stats show you that you know, it's actually safer physically than driving a car, which people do far more often. But what has happened is you've, you know, you've been introduced the concept of flying. You know, it's, a, it's a mechanical vehicle in the air, but it doesn't belong, technically speaking. And your logical thinking has gone, oh, what could go wrong? Your rational thinking has extrapolated outcomes which could happen, and your emotions have reacted to that. That's not the emotion's fault. You know, the fear you have, the hyperventilation. That's your, that's, your, that's your rational, logical thinking. That's the one that derived these scenarios and the information available. The emotion's just following along with it. And you know, so you say, like, oh, you've got to bring these emotions in. No, you've got to stop triggering them. Your rational thought, I mean. And it's you know, there's also the idea that they're two completely distinct separate things, but they're not really. A lot of the, you know, the underlying neurology suggests that they're actually very similar things, um, generated you know, at, you know, from the same raw material of neurological power, neurological energy, and activity. Uh, almost like, you know, like example I use it, it's like a river. Uh, all like neural energy is channeled in this direction, and one, at one point, when they split off at a fork. This way goes to emotion, this way goes to cognition and thinking. And that happens a lot later than you think. There's a lot more overlap, a lot more sort of intertwining than you know, the, the stereotypes and the cliches would have you believe. And one thing which was quite you know, profound, I thought, was the you know, studies which show that why do, we, why do we think rationally at all? Why do we think logically? Why do we apply logic and reason to things? Because in a purely biological sense, there's no, you know, there's no reason to do that. It doesn't really get us anything. We do it, apparently, because when we do that, we enjoy it. It makes us feel better. It causes an emotional reaction, positive emotional feedback. So rather than be detrimental to logical thought and reasoning, emotion is the reason we have it at all, which isn't something you get a lot of, you know, uh, you know not, a, not a perspective you hear very often, but it's one of those things which, I mean, when you look deep into the, into the weeds, it actually does seem to be the case that we need emotion to allow us to think rationally and to reinforce uh, logical decisions because you know, we are not 
nihilistic. We don't just go, oh, what's the point of anything? Emotions give us impetus and make us do things. And that's something which really shouldn't be sniffed at. Not just that fundamental level. No, we're thinking. Emotions affect us on so many different ways. They affect our perception of the world around us. Like when I was in the midst of grief, everything seemed awful. And it was. I mean, technically, it was in the middle of the pandemic, so it was awful. And no, that was a logical conclusion to arrive at. But even the things I liked and enjoyed, they all seemed grim and bad. So it felt like my emotions were affecting my senses, my perception. And that probably was happening. Because emotions have a much bigger role to play in our primary senses than perhaps most people would realise. So my father was... He, always, he loved his aftershave. He's always slathering himself with it. He didn't smell bad without it. He just really liked it. It was just a thing he had. And his favourite was Jean-Paul Gaultier's aftershave. Had a bottle for him, uh, purchased for his Christmas present, and in 2020, uh, he died. Never got it. So it's technically mine now. I don't like to wear it because, you know, it's a bit too close to home. But last year, my sister had a birthday and a big sort of party gathering because we were doing that again. I was obviously going to go along. I thought, you know, I'll put some on. Little, hmm, Dad'll be there in some shape or form. And I just splashed a bit on and inhaled it. And after I sat down for like five minutes, it'd been like over a year and a half at that point since he'd been dead, but that really hit. I'd have a, a few minutes to just sort of get through that. It all came rushing back. Because smell does that. I'd forgotten. I just wasn't thinking about it. But smell is one of the most reliable triggers for intense emotional recollection. Why is that? Uh, to answer that, we have to go back to the origins of life. Um, not every answer could be this long-winded, I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, technically, you can go back there, I want to life for everything, I'm going to say. But you know, in this particular case, it's more salient. Origins of life were, you know, the, ver the very first earliest life forms, just basically bags of complex chemicals in a complex chemical environment, interacting with other complex chemical things. So the main thing early life needed to know was what's happening with the chemicals around us, which is basically smell detecting a chemical change in your environment. So smell was the first sense, both in evolutionary sense and biologically. It's the first sense to develop. You develop a smell in the womb. You can smell your mother from inside. It's, it's a strange concept, but it's true. That's where the bonding comes from. So obviously the first sense we had was smell, uh, but what's the point of a sense if you can't retain the information it tells you? So smell and memory evolved in lockstep, really sort of intertwined. But what's the point of remembering stuff if you can't react to it or can't do something? about this information you've got. And that led to the development of emotions, because it was long before thought was a thing, thinking or like rationalization, just need a basic primal reaction to things. Like fear, fear was believed to be the first emotion. So smell, emotion, and memory all evolved very closely together. And this is still reflected in the structure of the human brain today. Smell has a direct access to the memories and emotion systems in the temporal lobe. Other senses don't have that, even though we rely more on sight and hearing. They, the information from them has to be shunted through the thalamus and directed into the memory system and emotion system. But smell has a VIP pass to get straight in there. So smell has a far more direct and profound impact on our emotional systems. And there's also things like sound. Music is perhaps the most reliable emotional sound you can experience. My father loved music, all sorts of different types, and you know, he's a bit of aficionado of various things. Me, not so much. I'm not, you know, I like music fine, but I'm not as uh, invested in it as most people are. And I realize I'm the weird one there. Most people love it, and I get that, but I just, you know, I, I like it fine. It's like, I like wine, but you know, people love wine. They can tell a Cristo from a Shiraz and stuff. I can say, yep, red or white, 
brilliant, love that. That's my sort of that's the level of my appreciation. But you know, it's not not wrong. But I have some interest in uh, likes. I mean, I'm a I'm a very rare Vengerboys apologist. <laughs> I will stick up for the Vengerboys whenever the opportunity arises, which is rare. I'll say that. Because I maintain they were actually not just some cheesy Europop band. I maintain they were secret eco-campaigners. The Vengabus is clearly a metaphor for nuclear fusion. <laughs> it's coming, and everything's going to be better. It's going to spread the world, but it's going to be better. When's it going to get you? It's coming. <laughs> when does it do yet? It's coming. It's definitely coming. We're going to Ibiza. Yes, we are all heading to a state of raised temperatures and hedonism. The denial is not good, but they, are, they flagged it up for us. And if you doubt the whole cold fusion analogy, boom, 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 I want you in my room. <laughs> what is that if not a metaphor for cold fusion and the abundant energy it will supply to all of us? <laughs> yeah, so that's why I like the Venga Boys. <laughs> also, I was 14 and I fancied the lead singer, but that's, that's why they're back. But this is, it's a strange thing to be attached to something. I wear it's free crappy, cheesy pop, but I was in a very emotional time in my life. It was my adolescence, and oh, I've developed a bond for this sort of thing. I know cheesy stuff is quite catchy. It has rhythms, it has structure, which cause an emotional reaction. And music affects us on multiple emotional levels, from the very basic, just the basic rhythms of boom, 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 boom. That can cause uh, arousal and excitement in, uh, you know, in the very basic levels of our brain. Maybe it's something to do with listening to the heartbeat in the room when it goes up, you know, you just start getting energized. When you, people at the gym, they have their up-tempo music. It does motivate you to run faster. It causes an emotional reaction. And... You know, but on a more complex level, you can, if, if you hear music in an emotional context, you will then attach that emotion to that music, because you know, your brain listens to it quite well, and it picks up, even if you don't realize it's happening, it's musical emotional contagion, it's a real thing, and it, it compels us to move, rhythm and harmony are things our brain reacts to in a very positive emotional way more often than not. And the type of music makes a big difference too. There's a lot of studies to show that people who listen to heavy metal music are the least angry people, by and large. Not a joke, definitely true. Because, a uh, similar thing, like sad music, very, very common music format. Sad songs, like bleak things, like Johnny Cash and all his output. That's fine, but when you think about it, it doesn't make logical sense. Why are people embracing a format of art and creativity which induces a negative emotional state? People don't normally want to be sad. We avoid that. We avoid situations where we might end up being sad but we embrace art forms and creativity, which causes that. And the argument is that when we have an emotional experience, we need to process it. It's not just a question of it happens and goes away. That experience is there in our brain now and needs to be integrated into our psyche, our emotional state, our mental model of the world, however you want to define it. But it also, uh, because of the way the brain works, the same parts which process your emotions are the exact same parts which generate it in the first place. So you can't process an emotion if you don't experience it, so which makes it difficult, but it's a negative emotion you're trying to avoid. But that's where these music and these art forms come in. So you know, sad books, scary stories, like angry music, it allows our brain to indulge in this emotional state without any risk to us, without any real investment. So you can listen to a sad song. You can turn off whatever you want. You can feel that emotion. You can listen to the lyrics and be sad. And next time something happens which makes you sad, your brain will have more experience at dealing with that and it'll be able to process it better. Similar with anger. If you listen to a sort of music which causes an angry state on a regular basis, your brain's going to have big angry muscles, I mean, for want of a better description. It's going to be, right, I can handle anger now. I won't fly off the handle because I don't need to. 
If, I, if something bothers me, I'm going to scream later at the gig, and then I'll be fine. And it does seem to work that way. Like People like heavy metal fans are generally quite calm. Make of that what you will. And also colours. Colours have an emotional impact on us. It's weird when you think about it, because why would a certain wavelength of a photon hitting your retina cause an emotional reaction? But it does. And for very strange reasons. Like we have, no, we, have, we, we uh, impart a lot of emotional quality to colours. Like red is uh, warning, or like excitement, arousal, danger. Sometimes it's sexy fun times with red, red clothes, red outfits. Sometimes it's Santa, not the same. Depends what you're into. I'm not gonna, <laughs> no judgment here. But it is, no, something to be aware of. But then on the contrast, greens and blues. Generally quite cool, calming, relaxing colours. Orange is sort of like excitement, anger sometimes. Orange tends to cause an angry reaction in people. Pink is very feminine, blue is very masculine, whatever. You know, we have a lot of attributions that certain colours cause certain emotional reactions. And there's a really strange, uh, well, I, I think it's strange, really fascinating reason behind that. It's to do with the fact that primates have bald faces. Primates are mammals. Uh, like many mammals, they have full covering body hair. Unlike most other mammals, that hair doesn't cover the face. Think about a hairy mammal, it tends to have, you know, the hair goes everywhere. Primates, not so much. Primates have the most advanced facial expressions, most complex facial expressions of any uh, genre of mammal. Genre? That's not the word. Um, <laughs> You know what I mean, if you want to design a mammal, put it in the mammal genre. It is a common thing. You know, think of any you know, chimps, marmosets, whatever you want, they have bald faces. Because faces for, mar for mammals, for primates, are a big part of our ability to communicate emotions. You know, expressions are very, very complex, because we are social species, very social species, and that's how we communicate and relay emotions to each other, via the face. But not just the expressions, the physical properties, also it turns out the colour. Like I said, when you're angry, your face goes flushed, or when you're scared, it goes white, because yeah, the blood goes to and from it in various ways. That seems to be an important part of recognising other people's emotions. They did a study where the people were given like, a load of blank, neutral faces with certain colour patterns and said, uh, try and guess which emotion this colour is showing. And people got it right more often than not. So just a simple blob, a few blobs of colour, people can recognise an emotional state from that if it's in a face. But also... The human colour perception has a certain range to it. We are very sensitive to a certain range of colours. And these, this range matches up very, very closely with this range of colours expressed by human faces when they're in an emotional state. So not so much as, you know, it's surprising that colours have an emotional quality. Emotions seem to be the reason we can see colours, the colours we see at all, because they evolved that way. And that's actually really quite, uh, you know, quite good. So if monkeys had to shave, we wouldn't see any colours. Not a phrase I ever thought I'd say out loud, but there we go. <laughs> so those are the fundamental aspects of emotions that happen in our, in, in, to us in our bodies. But we have these uh, elaborate uh, systems and you know, these things because not because we just want to, we need to experience emotions. We need to communicate them. A lot of human brain power, a lot of physical stuff is dedicated to not just experiencing but to put the emotions out there. Humans are always emitting a wide range of. Um, emotional cues. And we're not even aware we're doing it, but it's happening. Like I've been doing it a lot tonight. You know, I'm wandering around in a strange way. Like I've done a few little chair poses here. And it's, it's odd, I know, it's very it's distracting. But I thought normally what I would do is I would stand back here and sort of maybe there's a lectern there or something. I would uh, I find a spot to stand in 
And I would look straight ahead. Now, what I would do, I'd look behind, like, look at someone's face, I'd look at their shoulder off to one side, because I didn't want to make eye contact with them. It looks like I am doing that if anyone's looking. Uh, so, like, I'm doing the whole thing without making any eye contact with anyone, and, you know, so then everyone feels okay. Yeah, doesn't sound very neurotypical, Dean. Should we probably look into that, yes. <laughs> but it's more of an empathy thing, I think, because I don't like staring at people, because uh, when I'm the one who's talking, it, it's odd, you know, if I'm just glaring at your face, that's uncomfortable, right? This, this could take a while, there's a lot of you. <laughs> the face doesn't help, I know, that's... Uh, <laughs> I don't have to do that, I just thought it was funny. But it's, you know, so I'm communicating emotional stuff, but this happens a lot when you're on the phone. This is a similar thing, because when you're on the phone with someone, do you ever find you just have to get up and just wander? You just like, you don't need to, it's a mobile phone, you can go, you can, go, I mean, you can carry it, that's the point, but you know, it, that person on the other end doesn't know where you're going, doesn't, can't hear anything, but... We are used to communicating with people with a full range of emotional information. Our body, giving off sign language, our tones, our inflections, our posture, like the raised eyebrows, all these things. You know, shape of our face, shape of our body, like the stance, slouch. There's a lot. You know, they all say like only 10% of uh, communication is verbal. That's probably true. But even then, it's not just the words, it's the, the way they're delivered, the inflections, the tones, the, the, you know, the stances, the clipped nature of your words. These are all things which convey emotional information. And a lot of time we don't even realize we're doing it. We are putting emotions out there all the time. Again, at, at this point, I can see people are getting to the get on with it mate phase. That's fair enough, I get that. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, a, it's not the most comfy seat, but, but this is important. It's really quite, you know, we are giving emotions out there all the time without even realizing. And we pick up on this. You ever gone into a room and it turns out someone just had an argument, but you didn't know that. You walk in and go, ooh, what the hell's going on here? You know, you feel, you know, just from people's posture and stuff, they're radiating this hostility, this emotional information, which you don't know the context of, but you can definitely pick it up. When people laugh, you've gone to a comedy gig and in hindsight, you laugh at something. I don't know why I laughed at it. It wasn't funny, but everyone else was. So you will as well. You are like 30 times more likely to laugh in company. And that's why, you know, things like Zoom calls are so difficult to... Not difficult, but they aren't as good. You, know, you find them a bit more exhausting, a bit more draining. Because you've got the face, you've got the, but you haven't got the full, you know, the full panoramic experience of someone sharing emotional information. And it can lead to some weird places. Because we do have, you know, um, it's a, it's a rom-com cliche. People who like, hate each other, you know, they argue all the time, but they are very compatible. They end up getting together because, you know, plot. You know, that's the thing, the chemistry people have. A lot of it's because... Although consciously they may have different views, different opinions on things, then they argue about it, and they don't, you know, consciously on a linguistic level, they are not getting on. While that's happening, they're both giving out emotional cues. And sometimes you get someone who's, whose brain is subconsciously responding to your cues and sending the right ones back. So you can have things where people are just you know, having one conversation verbally and having a totally different one emotionally, sort of under the surface, as it were. And that one's going a lot better than the verbal one. So you end up with people who are like really quite compatible, despite having wildly different um, you know, conscious viewpoints. And then you get you know, this weird situation where people who don't get on really do get on, because the emotional connection is actually more fundamental and often more persuasive. We just don't know what's happening. But why do we communicate these emotions? What's the point of that? You know, what's uh, what's the, the end goal of that? And a lot of it's to do with the fact that we share emotions. We don't just recognize other people's emotions. We share them. We see someone else who's sad, we feel sad as well for them. Um, if you, you know, obviously, my father's passing, went to the funeral. Like it was nowhere near as much as, uh, as well attended as we'd hoped. The socially distanced funeral, but 
been to other funerals, very sad affairs. But I've been to funerals which, uh, just to support someone else, like as, as company for someone who did know the deceased. I didn't. I didn't know them, and I met them. This is the first I heard they existed on their funeral. But you go, it's, it's, always, it's always a sad affair. You go in, it's very somber, it's very sad. Despite your, you, know, you have no particular investment in this person or this instance, it is sad because you know, everyone else is sad. You're picking up on the mood of the room, the atmosphere, and you're feeling it too because you have empathy, or in this case, emotional contagion. We don't know what person is coming from. Different process. This happens because of, uh, well, it's mirror neurons. That's something we have in the primate world. We are primates. The neurons which allow us to look at what someone else is doing, and your brain just recognizes how to do that action yourself. So like, you know, someone else raises their arm, your mirror neurons will have the arm bit which will raise up. It's a really important part of primate's ability to learn from others, just learn by observing. But in humans, at least, at some point, that got attached to the emotion system. So now we see that someone else's emotional cues, like all the body language you're putting out, and we feel that emotion too. Not to the same extent, because then we wouldn't get anything done, but we do feel it. And there's also, uh, you know, it's lots of different cases. When someone hurts a part of their body, we tend to look at them and go, oof, and activity in your brain corresponding to that part of the body in you shows activity. And you know, we think, well, that's fair enough. Like, you know, if you hurt your foot, I've hurt my foot, I know what that feels like. But with emotions, it's not necessarily that egocentric. It's a separate process. There are people who don't feel pain, congenital pain insensitivity. And if you show them someone else hurting themselves, they will go, ask them, sorry, if you ask them to gauge how much pain that person's in, they'll never get it right. They don't have any experience uh, to calibrate. If you ask them how much emotional discomfort they're in, they will get it right, because they recognize that. They still have the same emotional repertoire, despite not having any physical pain. So the emotion recognition system is a big fundamental part of us. That's when you suppress it, when you try and stop it from happening, that's when problems arise. Things like, in the workplace, it happens a lot, like um, burnout in the medicine world. That's what uh, comes up a lot these days. Obviously, post-pandemic, during pandemic, NHS crisis, a lot of medical staff are extremely uh, overworked and hard done by. And there's lots of you know, contributing factors to that. It's a really hard job and important times and no resources. But one fundamental part, which is often overlooked, is that in medicine, you have to suppress your emotions. Because you can't deal with the patient and sort of start crying and they start crying. You have to maintain objectivity, I mean, rationality, be like aloof and do, do your job that way. But doing so for too long causes stress. Same with any other job. Um, if you have you know, call centers, when you have to be nice to people who are screaming at you, or retail, when the customer is clean, not right, but you have to pretend otherwise, because otherwise you get fired. My own job, uh, I worried that I'd damage my emotion system because I spent a year and a half embalming cadavers from medical school. And that's a really unpleasant job. But you have to disengage. You can't just sort of break down crying every time you see a dead person because it's your job to stick the tubes in and fill them full of formalin. You have to become emotionally distant, which I did. And I worry that's caught on too much since because I had to deal with a lot of uh, emotional fallout from my father's passing. But it's, you know, we often encourage you that, you know, the whole, you can choose your attitude, you can, you can smile if you want, but that's, that's bad. Trying to impose a, you know, the wrong emotional state or blocking your emotional state, it stops you from communicating it and therefore stops you from processing it. Trying to stop people from experiencing emotions is sort of tantamount to driving on the motorway in second gear. You know, the car's trying to stop you, trying to hold you back, but you need to go. And it's causing damage. And that's where a lot of you know, modern problems can arise. 
because we're constantly told you shouldn't you know, let your emotions out. You should keep a lid on them. Sometimes it's necessary, other times not. And no amount of resilience training is going to change that. So we share emotions, and that's a big part of human connectivity and interaction. But who do we connect to? Now, one of the hardest things my father passed was the fact that, you know, I was in a terrible state. There's a literal pillar being kicked out from my world. The rest of the world, as far as I could see, was carrying on fine. Middle of the pandemic, although, like, go online, see if anyone's, like, devastated as I am. Nope, a lot of sourdough. A lot of sourdough and Facebook quizzes. So that seemed disrespectful, even though it wasn't. You know, it was, no, one, no one's obligated to change their life because mine's been disrupted. You know, so it was hard to take other people just not caring. Not, you know, not, not callously, just not knowing, being indifferent because it's not their life. Uh, you know, especially hard to take when a few years later, the entire country had to grind to a halt because a 96-year-old millionaire died. That was a bit much to take, I'll be honest. And the same people who were literally getting pissed when... My father had just died, almost like they were celebrating, and now telling me, like, you must stop and pay respects to women you don't know. So it's, it's hard. People care about different things, though. I'm not going to sort of pass judgment there. It, it was a bit much to take, but people are emotionally invested in different people. We can't care about everyone. We can't care about everything at all times. We care about those we are associated with, connected to. We like our team, our in-group. We, have, we will tend to relate to people who are like us, because it's less mental effort, you know, we have things in common, we can have an emotional connection. So you can mostly connect to a certain number of people. We don't have the capacity to engage with it or care about everyone, because it's just simply not possible. I know we have priorities, we have important people in our life. Now, this is a hard thing for me to say, but my father died, and it was awful, it was terrible. He was, you know, I would never want to do that again, but I'm going to have to. I've got other parents, you know, my mother and stuff, and I'm not looking forward to that. But if it had been my wife who had died, instead of my father, I wouldn't be here now. That would have genuinely broken me. I don't know how I would have got through that. It would have been devastating. Don't think I could have handled it. And, you know, being as objective as possible, perhaps that's odd. <clears throat> On the Holmes and Ray stress scale, death of a spouse is the most stressful thing that can happen to you outside of uh, abnormal occurrences. Like four places above death of a parent. We didn't really think about it because people go in out of relationships all the time. Divorce is very common. People have multiple partners throughout their life. You only have one parent, and they raised you. Why would their passing be less stressful than your romantic partners? Lots of reasons for that. Um, I think when you, you know, when you grow up, you are at least on some level aware that you will likely outlive your parents because just that's how age works. So it's something you have to accept from the, from the get-go. But in terms of development emotional development. We grow up with our parents. They are like the, the crux of our emotional world. But during adolescence adulthood, it's almost like our responsibility to disengage. We try to sort of remove our emotional dependence on our parents because that's adulthood. You have to develop and form new connections with other people. When you have a romantic partner, whoever they may be, um, you develop, you increase your emotional bonds towards them. And they become a big part of your emotional repertoire, your emotional experience. A lot of studies show that you know, the, the most enduring long-term couples are like an emotional soundboard for each other. They are a big part of your ability to express your emotions, which is why it can be quite grating when you have a problem you want, to, you want to vent to your partner about. And rather than just listening, they try and offer solutions. It's well-meant, but it's annoying. It's like, oh, I had a real bad time at work today. My boss did this and that. And they say, well, have you tried... 
No, that's not what I wanted. I wanted you to listen to me and say I was right to be annoyed. <laughs> what you're telling me, with your good efforts to try to help, what you're telling me is your emotions are wrong, you're wrong, here's how you fix things, which isn't what you want in an emotional state. See, your partner does become a part of your emotional range, your repertoire, and losing that is a massive blow, as well as all the other stuff too. And obviously there's a big lot of stuff happens when you're in, in a long-term partner with someone. But obviously the most important people in my life, the most important humans, are my children. That's them. That's Milan, that's Kavita. Yes, they are. Very beautiful, I know. <laughs> they are more important to me than anything and everyone. If I was given sort of like a button saying, you press this button, uh, it'll end climate change, save millions of lives, but your children will die, button's going in the bin. Not happening. Simply not happening. Can't do it. Not that person. Uh, but you know, a lot of people don't want children, I know that. Uh, but when I had my, my son was born, it was a profound emotional experience. When you're, you know it's happening. Theoretically, you're away that a baby is coming. Um, obviously, physically for a woman, but as a bloke, I wasn't part of that process. Um, but, you know, it's like you can know this. You can buy all the strollers, go to all the classes, all the midwife stuff, and you know, all the, be there for all the, the, all, the, all, all the purchases, all the essentials, look at schools, and all, do all that. But then, you know, you're mentally prepared for it, you think, and then they just plonk a tiny, fragile human in the arm and say, that's yours forever now. What? Okay, right, I guess, I guess that's a thing. Massive emotional wrench. You know, it kicked open a lot of barriers which I built up in my head from the old work stuff. I know some people don't want children, uh, but they're actually, they're a fundamental part of how human emotions work, whether you want them or not, because that's what they've evolved. The oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, the hormone which is secreted in our brains and bodies, which enhances emotional bonds, emotional reactions. That's derived in an evolutionary sense from the system which occurred originally to cement the mother-child bond when it's born. Like when a woman's giving birth, both her and the baby's body is flooded with oxytocin. Skin contact causes oxytocin release. That's why it's so important. Breastfeeding causes oxytocin release. It's like a really, it's, it's a strong emotional bond that can happen. But at some point, evolution got a bit thrifty and goes, I want to just take that and detach it a bit from mother and baby and apply it to other things interpersonal relationships, friends. So a lot of our emotional connections come originally from uh, the babies and our reactions to them, and which leads to some other interesting phenomenon, like uh, the phenomenon of pets. These are my pets. That's Pickle, that's Forrest. Uh, he's a tabby, he's a beagle. Guess which one's which? <laughs> yes, I know. Emotion, emotional manipulation. Enjoy it. <laughs> now imagine trying to explain owning a cat to an alien. All right. <laughs> So what is this? Well, it's, um, well, you know, predators. Yeah, it's a small one of them. Right. Um, where does it live? In my house. <laughs> did, what does it do? Not much. <laughs> Sleeps a lot. Um, does it feed you? No, I feed it. Yeah. Uh, what, does it do anything? It brings me vermin sometimes. <laughs> do you want vermin? No. <laughs> does it like you? It would probably eat me if I, uh, if I died right now. But, you know, as long as I keep feeding it, it probably won't try that. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get across <laughs> to someone unfamiliar with the concept cat ownership. But we love them. They are the stars of the internet. Same with dogs, they're a bit more affectionate and also more stupid. Uh, but why? Why do we want these things in our house? <laughs> a lot of it's to do with the fact that you know, um, you know, they are cute, you know, we recognize cute things. They have a lot of baby properties. They are small, they are you know, lightweight, they are vulnerable, they don't talk much. But they have the big ears, big eyes, the traits of babies. That's what, that's what cute is. Things which remind us of baby-type traits. 
and interact with us with complete abandon, complete naivety, complete dependence. We love that. But one of the weird things, the emotional reaction you have to a really cute thing, we all had it, like sort of, oh, it's so cute. It's That's it seems unhealthy. <laughs> it's so cute, I want to destroy it. <laughs> okay, good, good for you. And that is um, because when, we, when you're presented with a baby-like thing, a cute thing, it triggers um, oxytocin release and vasopressin release. Oxytocin is meant to make us nurture. Like that's, oh, that's a fragile, vulnerable thing. I want to hug it. I want to cuddle it. I want to protect it. Vasopressin is the protective thing. I want to defend this thing. I want to make sure it's not hurt in any way. That requires a level of aggression. Something comes at this. I'm going to fight it. But nothing here, so I'm just going to have the emotion and direct it at whatever's in front of me, which is this thing. <laughs> Cute aggression. It's a really strange emotional phenomenon that humans have. You know, not everyone likes pets. Not everyone likes kids. Uh, you know, are you a cat or a dog person? I say, no, no, homo sapien. Thumbs. <laughs> People don't talk to me after that, which is fine. But, you know, we are different. A lot of people have different emotional ranges. Like the idea we all have the exact same emotions, every, every, all the same things, is wrong. A lot of emotional differences. Now, obviously, the one that comes up most often is men and women. Well, they must be different, right? Uh, I ask I the question a lot in talks, like sort of Q&A, like unrelated to this. In, so what is the difference between men and women's brains? They, um, why do you care? What, what, what is the motivation behind that? But that's the thing. It's not is there. It's always what is. There definitely is one. All the newspapers say, finally, the evidence shows this is the difference in men and women's brains. Just because there's a cultural assumption that there definitely is a difference. Data doesn't support that. This idea that women are the emotional ones and men are the stoic, strong ones. It's more of a cultural creation than anything. Now, you know, there are differences, obviously, but those differences are a lot more skin deep than perhaps people realize. Look, these stereotypes have built up over time and they're bad. Women being emotional and therefore illogical has caused countless harmful things, which they still endure today. Women don't get the right mental health treatment they should have. My own wife went to a school which was the first in the UK to teach maths to 16-year-old girls, because before then, they always assumed that their brains would overheat, which isn't a thing that can happen, unless you, of course, put your head in a hairdryer, which is, you know, that's a whole other thing. But, you know, this idea that we have such starkly different emotional things. And I, I found it myself. I thought, I, I knew that was a nonsense, so I thought it was a nonsense. But then on my father's funeral, I didn't cry. I wanted to. I knew I should. That's what I should be doing. No one's going to judge me for it. But I couldn't cry until later that night. When everyone else had gone to bed, I just sat there on my own, drinking wine, trying to trigger an emotional response by watching clips from Pixar films. I'm not even joking, that's what I did. Like a nicotine patch for the soul. It was really uh, weird. But neither my uncles did either. The ladies were all crying. They were all really upset. But it was like the programming that men don't cry went in so deep that I couldn't overcome it, even though I rationally knew it wasn't a not sensible thing. It's really dangerous. You know, men have lower rates of mental health problems or depression and much higher rates of suicide. I don't think those two things are un unrelated. I know it's, it goes two ways. I mean, you know, women get a much shorter shrift a lot of the time, but you know, it's... Men are supposed to be all strong and stoic, and it's deeply unhealthy. I know, again, women might laugh, but has anyone used the term man flu before? Yeah. So men, should be, men should be more open, they should be more expressive, be more vulnerable. I don't feel well. Ha ha, man flu, you wimp. Not helpful. My father succumbed to that. My father was like, when I was, oh, I'm not, I'm not ill, I'm fine, I'm fine, I don't get ill. 
had he not thought like that, he might have gone to hospital earlier. Might still be alive now. Do you think man flu killed my father? So I don't find it particularly funny when it's mentioned. Just me, I suppose. But, you know, it's the idea that we have such different fundamental brains. It's like you, women are more oestrogen uh, to deal with. In the, you know, that's their dominant sexual hormone. Men have testosterone. And we all know what testosterone is like. I did a test with a lot of subjects, some in a, you know, a neutral group and some in a testosterone group. I made them play this game. And as you'd expect, those who were given testosterone were more competitive, more merciless, more ruthless, and sort of like they just dominate other people. In, as you'd expect, except that the ones who were told they were given testosterone weren't, and the ones who weren't told they were given testosterone, they were given testosterone. The ones who actually had it were more cooperative, more friendly, more helpful to other people. The ones who thought they had testosterone, they were the ones who got aggressive, because that's what we think testosterone does. It doesn't do that, it turns out. It's all about status. Like we say, I have testosterone, like, oh, what's our status? I want to elevate it. In this situation, in most situations, humans are cooperative. We value interaction and cooperation and you know, getting along with each other more than most things. So testosterone makes you do that more, unless you're in a situation where that's not prized. We said where we're like being aggressive is the, you know, the makes high status. So what I'm saying is, humans being cooperative, men being cooperative and interacting and helping each other, that's the natural state. Alpha males, Dominant doggy dog, that's a social construct. So the evidence says, just saying it. And you know, that's, you, know, you might think, oh, it's still men, so vulnerable to testosterone. Every uh, subject of the experiment was a woman. So basically, emotionally, yes, we have different things going on, but it seems the hardware is the same. We are vulnerable to the same hormones as each other, it's just we have different levels of them. So there's a lot more, you know, a lot more common ground than perhaps we'd think. And our emotional ranges change as we get older. You know, children have a far more emotional life. They just figure out their emotions. Teens actually suddenly go more emotional because the emotional system has been refined and improved. And adults have you know, a bit more control over it because they've evolved that way, evolved, de developed that way. And of course, there's the neurodivergent community. People with autism and the like, they have emotions like anyone else. It just, in a sense, it's almost like it's on a different setting. You know, you've got a smart TV and you press a button and it starts turning Spanish. You don't know why that happened, but you can't turn that off now. It's sort of a bit like that, but not quite that extreme. But, you know, just like you're on a different setting. It's like you've got emotions, I'm just not the same as yours. So when you're, people tell neurodivergent people, like, no, oh, you must behave this way. You must, this is how emotions work. That is tantamount to a cliched British tourist. It's like, you can't understand me. I'll speak louder and slower. That's how it works. It's not. It's a very, very different thing. And finally, well, like, towards the end, one thing which helped my you know, emotional experience when my father passed was the technology, allowing me to stay in touch with people because there was no other option. But emotions and technology have a very, you know, have a very strange relationship. We don't like when technology tries to be emotional. You ever heard like, a train station announcement, I am extremely sorry for the delay to this train. No, you're not. You're a recording. You don't give a damn. You don't even know I'm here. Stop lying. We don't like being manipulated by machines, especially on an emotional level. And our machines are being drafted in and software to do things like recognize uh, people's emotional state from their face, based on a lot of emotion research, but it usually completely avoids context. A lot of security has gone on in airports. Let's look for terrorists by seeing who's stressed. You know what people find stressful? Air travel. <laughs> airports. Being probed by security forces. 
US customs. Very stressful experiences. Oh, this sounds like the 53rd terrorist in the last minute. What are the odds of that? <laughs> Not helpful. But, you know, when the uh, pandemic ended, which it hasn't, you know, but uh, <laughs> when we sort of forgot about it, I started meeting people who I hadn't met for over a year and a half. And they would start telling me, oh, I'm really sorry about your dad. I was like, thank you, but I'm, I'm a year and a half on from that now. I don't know how to respond to this. What's, what's the etiquette here? Do I say, oh, it's fine? It's not fine. That's awful. Also, I don't say, I'm not still in you know, the pit of grief. I have worked through this by writing all about it. So I didn't know how to respond to that. But if you were to meet someone who had just lost someone very close to them and they were in a terrible state, what would you say to them? Would you say, you're lying, you haven't lost anyone? Would you say, well, if they did die, it was good that they died, because, you know, they were an inconvenience. I imagine you wouldn't. That's appalling. But myself and countless other people had that exact same thing all day, every day, during the pandemic. You go on Twitter, go on the news, you've got presidents and prime ministers and politicians saying, it's not that bad, it's fine. People are making it up. All the pundits saying, oh, we just need to get back, get the country moving again. You people who've lost someone, shut up. Where does someone get to the point where they think that's an appropriate thing to say, even remotely? And technology is a big part of that because, you know, it was predicted many years ago that when we had the internet, it would be, you know, uh, it would be at an age of enlightenment. Everyone has access to all the information they could ever need. That hasn't quite panned out. Um, but a lot of this because although we have the information, our brains don't work that way. They don't suddenly, you know, you can't just absorb all the information. Oh, I know all the correct stuff. That's good. We, there's more information now than our brains can possibly process at any one time. Too much to, to take in because it's everywhere. What the brain normally does in that situation is default and let emotions decide. What information is important? The one that emotions like. Oh, this confirms my worldview. I like that. This doesn't. This makes me angry. Boo. And it keeps happening to the point where you join communities who all feel the same way because you can do that now because of technology. You get the emotional buzz of being part of a group. And then you want to impress that group, improve your status. And then you will have the emotional reward from impressing that lot. And then you become more and more extreme and more and more vociferous in your views, which everyone else agrees with, to the point where you start accusing the recently bereaved of being crisis actors or liars or telling them that it's good that their parent died because they were not a healthy contributor to society. It's not nice. It's really not nice. Don't know what to say about that. It's just no, it's a thing to deal with. I have solutions. I have sort of ideas of how to fix that. It's in the book. <laughs> so, final thoughts. Went through a lot. You know, far more than I can relay in an hour and seven minutes. Realizations were that we need emotions. The idea that science should just exclude them altogether and ignore them, it's caused a lot of problems. And, you know, it's going to keep doing so until we face up to the fact that these things are here to stay. We can't get rid of them. We can't remove them. We can't isolate them. They are important. They are a vital part of our functioning. They are like the bedrock of our brain. They're so intertwined. They're like, they're all like the, the mortar, the cement that holds the house up. You can get rid of it. It's going to collapse. Maybe not straight away, but eventually. They are so important to everything we do. And why do we go through all this trauma? You know, why, is, why is this such a bad thing? All these violent and aggressive emotions that come up when we lose someone? For various reasons, but it's, it's tantamount to when you have an illness or a virus. 
you have, you know, your, your nose starts running, you're inflamed, your sinuses, everything aches. It's technically not the virus doing that, it's your body's response to it. It's your immune system doing what it needs to do to fix this thing before it causes lasting damage. And grief and negative emotions like that are kind of the same thing in a psychological sense. Your brain going, a bad thing has happened. I can fix it, but we've got to go through some negative stuff first. That's how this process works. Change is unpleasant. We're going to have to work through all this. But I need you to keep still. I need you to keep quiet. Stop moving around. We'll, do, we'll deal with this. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's lots of things going on in there. But, you know, do I still love my father? Yes. Will I ever forget him? Of course not. Will I forget what I've learned from all this? Unlikely, I wrote it all down. <laughs> Soon if I did get absolutely blind drunk when I forget everything, you know, I'll just read that and hopefully that'll help. But yeah, so, you know, it's been a strange journey, an emotional one, but I've gained a new appreciation for emotions. I like to think I'm a lot less emotionally ignorant than I was before I started. And if you want to read it, hopefully, the same will apply to you. Thank you for listening. Apparently, some questions now. If you want to dive deeper into this topic, you can find a link to get Dean Burnett's book, Emotional Ignorance, in the episode description. Please remember to leave this episode a rating and a review to let us know what you think. And if you want to learn about more fascinating science topics from amazing speakers, check out our lineup of upcoming talks and live streams by going to rigb.org.